Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me today. This is Greg Lois. And today in our New York Workers' Compensation webinar series, we're really starting over and we're starting a new year-long program that's going to build. Our first presentation is called Case Foundations, and we're going to really talk about the basics of a workers' compensation case and really the initial considerations we make when we were beginning to defend one. And then these presentations are going to build throughout the year. So today we're talking case foundations. Next month in March, we'll be talking about medical and indemnity issues, April, common litigation issues, and then we're going to go through all the aspects of defending and adjusting as a claims professional uh, the workers' compensation case in the New York jurisdiction. Today's presentation is going to cover what we do when an injury occurs at work, the decisions we're going to make and the difference between accepting and denying cases and what that means legally, what that means procedurally, and what we need to do substantively to defend these cases. I'm also going to be referring to the handouts that I put in today's materials. Uh, there are four handouts, which I'll show you in the next slide. Uh, we're going to be talking about occupational disease claims, how we defend or dispute those. And the last topic I'm going to touch is how we defined and understanding what average weekly wage is in this jurisdiction. So today's handouts are in your GoToWebinar panel. There's one called C3 Employee Claim Form. There's a C-240 Wage Statement. There's a Model First Report of Injury Denial Type. That's a FROI-04 or FROI First Report of Injury Denial Type and a PH-16.2 pre-hearing conference statement. So those are the four documents I'm going to refer to. If you're listening to this on a podcast, it's okay. I'll explain what I mean and what I'm referring to in these various documents. And when you get a chance, you can come back and download them from the course materials. Uh, this new uh, webinar series that we're kicking off this year has been completely redesigned. And my goal here is to spend a year walking through a case beginning to end and really talking about how our litigation perspective um, impacts the way we're going to defend these cases. Uh, these are live presentations. They should each take about 30 to 45 minutes of prepared material, and then I will answer questions live. Please ask that question. You can type it into the GoToWebinar box. I will not embarrass you. I will say your name, your first name, so you know I'm answering your question. I will then read your question aloud so everybody can hear it, and I will then do my best to answer your question. And uh, the number one question I get is, hey, Greg, is this webinar recorded? Yes, these are all recorded. You can go to our website and listen to them all back. Lots of other ways to learn and a lot of supporting materials. So we do write handbooks. Uh, our 2023 edition of my New York Workers' Compensation Law handbook is available to download right now on our website. That's loisllc.com forward slash publications. You can download any of our handbooks. Um, the webinar presentations are going to roughly follow the books. And as we go through this presentation, we're going to get into some topics that are just too deep. They're rabbit holes. If I started talking about them, I could talk about them for hours. So I just put references on the slides uh, to the chapters and even to the pages in those chapters that you can go to to get more information about some of the topics we're talking about. I also want to recommend if you're attending this webinar and don't know, you can listen to all of the materials that we present because we post them as our podcast. This firm is now, we've now posted 274 podcasts in our Defending Employers uh, webcast series. 
That's available on loislc.com forward slash podcasts. And you can go back and listen to any of the webinars that we've given over the last six years in that uh, podcast player. So that's useful. You can listen to them. And I know sometimes watching back a video is slow. A lot of us prefer to listen to a podcast or something when we're driving. So that's a great way to sort of pick up uh, some materials and some like maybe some learning on the way in and out of the office. But I know nobody goes to the office anymore, but if you did, what a great way to pick up some learning. Um, now, some of you asked me, hey, Greg, what's the next level? You know, these podcasts or I'm sorry, this webinar is designed to be very much a, a teaching you as if you didn't know anything about New York workers compensation law. Greg, I'm hungering for some real next level stuff. Well, I'll point you over to my partner, Christian Cison's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. He issues it once a month. It's really amazing. He dives deep into really uh, abstract topics, emerging case law, changes in the statute. He usually brings on co-presenters with him. He does interviews. If you really want to get to the next level in New York workers' compensation, I'd really point you out uh, to that podcast. And that, again, you can subscribe to that through any of your podcast um, services like Spotify or iTunes. Uh, it's at loislc.com forward slash podcasts. So let me just talk briefly about our New York defense philosophy, New York at 30,000 feet. Our goal is to get in control of these cases, which are often out of control. Employers, I'm going to be encouraging you during this uh, webinar series to do things to reduce your exposure and reduce your risk. Number one thing you can do is design and implement a return to work program. Another thing you could do is cooperate with the carrier. We're going to talk about how we're going to work with you to most um, aggressively and vigorously defend your cases. It's important that you're decisive, identifying stakeholders, deciding what we're going to do in cases early. That's going to help us win the day. My job is to explain the judicial system to you, the system's biases, uh, sort of the rules of thumb, how this really works. I know that you're being dragged into workers' compensation courts. These courts are often hostile and indifferent to us as employers or carriers, and you don't want to be taken advantage of. And so I'm going to explain exactly how not to be taken advantage of. Uh, my goal is to give you practical ways to help you reduce exposure, reduce costs, and our focus is always on case closure, hashtag DFD1, which is defend from day one. If you start off your case with an idea of how you're going to close it, I guarantee you're going to get it there to closure and reduce exposure uh, much quicker. So let me just talk briefly. This is our introductory uh, webinar. I just want to talk a little bit about our firm vision, what's our mission, and what are our values that we bring to the way we defend these cases. Our vision is simply to be the best, the go-to workers' compensation defense practice, period, bar none, and most importantly, the best place to work for our employees. Our, our mission is to defend employers, and if you're the type of attorney or paraprofessional that wants to do that and defend your clients aggressively, this is the place to do it. We want to take control of that New York workers' compensation case, and then we want to stay in control so we can drive it towards closure. That's our mission. Our values, we call them CAPS. Our first value is creativity. The next value is advocacy. Our third value is professionalism, and our fourth value is service, C-A-P-S, so we call that CAPS. And we think that living these four values is how we best serve our clients. Creativity in our cases is trying new things. It's adapting. It's thinking out of the box. It's doing unique things. It's tailoring our defense to unique clients. In the workplace, it's taking care of each other. It's supporting each other. It's being open to criticism. And it's being able to work together at these problems until they get solved or closed. Advocacy is at the core of who I am. Greg Lois is aggressive. 
I love trying cases. It is being unrelenting in pursuing our clients' goals. We stand up for our clients. We know that they don't want to get taken advantage of, and so we're here to defend them. It also means we have to hold our adversaries accountable to the rules and the law. Opposing counsel wants to cut corners, and we don't let them. In the workplace, it means standing up for each other, standing up for those who are exemplifying our values, and holding others accountable who don't model our firm values. That's important to us. Professionalism to me means uh, our reputation, our ethics, our integrity. It's being respectful to the court and our adversaries. We try to be civil. And professionalism is also maintaining a work-life balance. I am very passionate about workers' compensation, but I'm even more passionate about setting aside time for my loved ones and being with my family. And I want to make sure everyone who works there also has that opportunity. So in our workplace, we are living our values with integrity. It's being respectful towards each other, and it's about respecting the work-life balance needs of our teammates. The fourth value is service, and to me, that's about being communicative and responsive to our clients. I also form partnerships with our clients. We don't want to be just your vendor. I don't want to be just a transaction. We want to be your partner, and we really do care about your cases, about your employees, uh, about representing you the best way we can. And in our workplace, we're that same way towards each other. We're here to lift each other up, take care of each other, and form those lifelong bonds based on what the work we're doing. So our values, creativity, advocacy, professionalism, and service, that's going to color every single thing we do, and that's our approach. Lois Law Firm is different, and our firm is organized around our clients, not on attorneys. Uh, we dedicate attorneys to clients, and we try to have that relationship stay from the beginning of our retention all the way into the last file that we close for you. We want to have relationships between the attorneys and the clients that they represent. We have a cradle-to-grave handling philosophy. Our playbook is different. Uh, we wrote the playbook in this jurisdiction. We have much higher standards for how we handle cases, and we are the ones that are getting the appellate division decisions that are going to shape the law going forward. We're also very unique in that we have a one-to-one -one ratio between attorney and paraprofessional. We have 42 attorneys and we have 42 paraprofessionals, and they are incredibly competent professionals who are doing everything in cases except for attending hearings uh, and attending depositions. By law, those can only be done by attorneys, but everything else from writing briefs, preparing cross-examinations, doing trial summaries, I mean, they do everything and they are an amazing group. Uh, we also are at the forefront of being metric-based in terms of our litigation management. If you're one of my clients, you get a scorecard from me every quarter telling you how we're doing for you, time on desk, how many cases we're defending, how many we're appealing, what's your litigation spend, all that stuff we send to you. And then our training culture. I, I have a, the heart of a teacher, and I think that's infused this entire firm. Uh, we really do care about training and improving things for our clients. So applying all of this together, uh, we want to be creative for you. We want to use every change in the law as an opportunity to create leverage in your case. We want to be as aggressive as advocates as we can be to create leverage, create momentum. We want to be professional. I will hold opposing counsel to account, and we want to be responsive to our clients, and that's how we move cases forward here. Let's jump into today's materials. I really want to talk about case foundations. What are the important parts of the case that start right off from the beginning? So let's talk right about the time of the loss. The accident occurs. You've got an injured worker. In our New York workers' compensation system, under Section 21 of the law, there's five presumptions that every claimant is entitled to, and they get. The first is that any injury, illness, uh, 
comes within the provisions of the workers' compensation law. It is deemed to be compensable as long as it happens at work. So then it's up to us to sort of refute that. The second presumption is that notice is given of the loss. The third presumption is that the employee did not attempt to intentionally harm themselves. Fourth, that the injury did not result solely from the intoxication of the injured employee. And of course, that means even where the employee is intoxicated, even when they do have a positive drug test, the burden falls to us, the employer, to prove that the loss was solely because of the intoxication. And the fifth presumption that the claimant obtains or gets by dint of law is that any medical or surgical report is deemed evidentiary, prima facie evidence of the fact contained within those medical reports. So it's up to us to either refute or challenge them. In today's case, we're going to talk a little bit in this presentation, we're going to talk a little bit about a made up case that we've presented some materials to you for. So the first thing that you're going to find in your handouts today is an employee claim form. An employee claim form is an incredibly important document in a workers' compensation case, absolutely foundational. The claimant is saying, uh, here's my name, here's who I work for, and here's how I got hurt. And by the way, here are the body parts that I got injured. The employee also has to state if they've ever had a prior injury to that same body part. So that's very important for us in starting to look into, hey, are there priors? Are we entitled to apportionment? And one of the most important parts about the employee claim form is the fact that the employee is required to sign it. So this becomes a certification or an evidentiary piece of documentation in the case that we can point to later in the case. That's incredibly important in a workers' compensation case in New York where the claimant, it starts off as a left toe injury, and two years later, now they're claiming they have a psychiatric claim and a back injury and a right leg injury, and now their knee aches because they've been favoring that toe, and they start to bring in more and more consequential body parts. You're able to bring up that employee claim form and say, look, you're bringing in body parts that you never alleged were part of this case. Uh, and again, they have to sign it so that we can utilize this against them during a cross-examination. Now, even though these claim forms are required to be filed, opposing counsel typically does not voluntarily have their clients sign and file them. And so we often have to force them to file an employee claim form. So here's our made up case. The claimant's name is Drake Von Train, and he claims that he was injured as follows, quote, while taking the Rubbermaid garbage can to the compactor back of the truck, I strained my left shoulder and the garbage can tore and pierced my left bicep, close quote. So that's how he claims he was injured. That leads us to our next step. There's been an accident. There's been a claim. Do we accept this or do we deny it? And some of the questions you're going to want to answer are, is the claimant losing time? Do we have to pay them wage replacement? And what happens if there's no supporting medical, which is so common in this jurisdiction? Claimant simply disappears from the workplace and there's nothing, no medical that's been provided to you, the carrier or the employer yet. Well, New York complicates this because they have a payer compliance regulation, 300.22 of the uh, uh, regulations that states the the employer has to make payments to the claimant and report them to the chair within 18 days of their disability or within 10 days after the employer has knowledge of the disability, whichever period is greater. So this is called the 1810 rule, and it requires payment even when there is no medical record supporting the lost time, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, you've got a very short period of time to just start paying someone, and again, they've presented no medical evidence, no out-of-work note, no medical record showing that they were actually injured at work or sustained an injury. Now, there is a workaround to this. Uh, 
uh, and I'll talk about that in a second, but just note that there's a penalty, a $300 penalty if you don't pay within these timelines, which sometimes is just not enough time to investigate properly a loss. The workaround is that you can pay at the mild rate, which is $150 a week for up to 30 days without prejudice while you research that claim. And that is specifically authorized by Workers' Compensation Law Section 21-A. So that is something you can do if you cannot complete your investigation and determine whether or not to accept or dispute this claim within that 1810 payment uh, period uh, to avoid that penalty. So the big question is, should this case be accepted or denied? Now, we know that 85% of cases are accepted in this jurisdiction. And let's be frank, most people get injured at work, get injured, receive some treatment, sometimes a few doctor's visits, and they go back to work within a week or two. That's the common experience. So we're really talking about those other cases, right? And those are really the ones I see. Well, the claimant is entitled to wage continuation if the lost time exceeds the waiting period, which in New York is seven days. Once lost time exceeds 15 days or more, then we go back and fill in that seven-day initial waiting period. Wage replacement is subject to maximums and minimums, and we'll talk about that a lot in the next presentation and a little bit in this one. And of course, after there's an injury uh, from, from work, medical treatment will begin at that time. Medical treatment is absolute, and it is always the liability of the employer or carrier. We're gonna talk about medical treatment and all of the issues surrounding that in next month's presentation. So how do we help you decide what to do when you're faced with an injury, uh, a report, and a need to determine whether or not this is going to be compensable or not? Well, we're here to help you. Um, we will do uh, immediate triage of your cases. Uh, we will open up a case for pre-litigation guidance as long as you email it to our intake department at newfile at loislc.com. We'll perform an instant conflict check and we will give you some advice about whether or not you should accept this case. Most of the time, this is because there is a legal issue in the, um, in the case and the claims professional needs a little guidance from us. We will send you an email the same day so that you have that advisory opinion and you can paper up your file, whether you decide to accept it or deny it. If you then tell us, hey, we do want to, to go forward and represent us, maybe this is gonna be a disputed matter, we will then send you out a, an acknowledgement letter and a letter of representation immediately, and of course, serve all discovery demands that are allowed under the law on our adversary. In most cases where there is a third-party reimbursement potential or subrogation potential, we'll also protect your right to that subrogation or reimbursement by sending out a Section 29 lien letter immediately. So let's talk about denied cases. Then um, the employer in our case example is going to deny our case. We'll talk about that in a second. In a denied case, the compensable decision has been made. The carrier or their third-party administrator or the employer, uh, self-insured employer, will file a first report of injury dash 04 type. That's the denial type. And they must include New York-specific denial codes. Once that's done, the court will set the case down for a pre-hearing conference if there is medical evidence of an injury or disability that has been filed with the court. Following that, a pre-hearing conference statement must be filed with both the Workers' Compensation Board and served on all parties. We serve one with a uh, deprecated paper form called a C7 because the statute continues to require it. And we will generally file that at the same time we are filing our supporting information for your denial. Our paralegal will generally immediately contact your risk professional for authority to contact witnesses because we will start assembling and preparing our case for that initial pre-hearing conference 
immediately. Very important that we get moving quickly, and I'll show you why in the next couple slides. Now, when you're denying a case, that first report of injury denial type has to be filed. I can't file it for you. Uh, attorneys are not allowed to file these first reports of injuries or the denials directly. Only the insurance carrier or third-party administrator of a self-insured employer are allowed to file those. We will give you the codes that you need to enter into that form so that you can fully protect your denial. Uh, the next part of the denial is filing a pre-hearing conference statement, which is simply a description of all the defenses and witnesses and documents that we intend to introduce in support of our dispute. Denied cases all go on what's called the rocket docket. It's actually called the expedited trial calendar, but nobody calls it that. We all call it the rocket docket. Uh, they get a pre-hearing conference, and then the decision needs to be reached by the judge of compensation, this is by regulation, within 60 days from the time of that pre-hearing conference. And that includes all testimony that's going to be adduced during that case. Uh, there are a no specific requirement for um, how quickly this happens or in general, but I can tell you that in most denied cases, the pre-hearing conference is held within 30 days, and then the final decision in, on compensability is reached by the judge of compensation within 60 days by regulation after that. So for most cases in which you're hitting, issuing a denial and for which there is uh, some medical record so that the claimant has some support for their claim, you're reaching a complete decision in your case in 90 days. So that's really, really fast. And obviously that does not inure to the benefit of the employer because it doesn't give us a lot of time to prepare defenses, get present witnesses, obtain documents. It's just a very quick, uh, short time period. And that's where we're going to do a lot of our work to help protect you. Now, deadlines for denied cases. When you are considering denying a case, from the time the case is indexed by the Workers' Compensation Board, meaning assembled and a docket number issued, you have 25 days to file that first report of injury denial type. If you fail to file that within 25 days, you will waive your basic jurisdictional defenses, including employer-employee relationship, accident of injury, course of employment, etc. So that's a very, very draconian, a terrible penalty for failing to file a piece of paper on time actually submit something via EDI on time, I should say. The board will then schedule the pre-hearing conference. Uh, both parties have to file a pre-hearing conference statement at least 10 days before the conference and serve it appropriately on all parties. If you fail to do so, you'll be waiving more defenses, which is again, a very draconian penalty. There is no penalty anymore. In fact, they just changed the regulation in uh, 2023 as of January. Uh, there's no penalty to the claimant who fails to file their pre-hearing conference statement on time, but there is a penalty to the employer because, of course, why wouldn't we penalize the employer? Now, the defenses that we're going to raise are going to depend on, uh, or sorry, the codes that we're going to enter are, are going to depend on what defenses we're trying to raise. So uh, where we argue the injury did not occur in the course of employment, we would raise code 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, and you can see them here on your screen. Those are the codes for coming and going and horseplay and willful intent, etc. And as I scroll through these next couple screens, you can see that each one of these defenses that we would bring in, uh, so for example, the claimant has no medical evidence, you would raise code 2C and 2D. Uh, we want to make sure that you raise all the codes you can to protect them. Remember, if you do not raise a defense, you are waiving that defense. 
even a defense like lack of notice or statute of limitations, which again, these are jurisdictional defenses. If you fail to put those in that first report of injury denial type, you are waiving that defense. And by the way, the notice requirement in New York under Section 18 is 30 days. The statute of limitations is two years. The statute of limitations in an occupational claim, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is two years from when the claimant knew or should have known that their occupational disease or illness was causally related to the employment exposure. Another example is no accident. Again, you can waive the defense of no accident by failing to raise on your first report of injury the lack of causal relationship. Uh, even a death case, your defenses could be raised, could be waived, excuse me, if you fail to raise them. Um, there are defenses, for example, for lack of coverage or improper carrier. Now, in our example case that we talked about, let's go back to that Drake Von Train case, that C-3 form that I've given you as an example. Here the claimant alleges that he injured his left shoulder and bicep while working. How are we going to uh, assert defenses in that example case? Well. In the Drake Von Train case, our client believes that the claimant is faking his injuries or is a fraud. And so we've asserted very specific defenses. We've asserted 1D, no compensable accident, 2C, no work-related stress or injury, 2D, no causal relationship, 2E, no causal relationship as per statutory definition, and 1L, which is kind of a catch-all uh, defense, which is the presumption of compensability does not apply. In this case, our model case, the denial is based on covert surveillance of the claimant that the employer has obtained. They were suspicious of his activities and they obtained surveillance of him uh, while he was allegedly too disabled to work. Remember, his claims were that he, quote, strained my left shoulder and the garbage can tore and pierced my left bicep, left close quote. So he's claiming injuries to his left shoulder and arm. But they placed him under surveillance, covert surveillance, and they obtained some observations uh, in which they dispute the compensability of his claims. And when you watch this video, and I'm going to play it here and give a little sort of running commentary. When you watch the video of the claimant, you can see he's clearly able in the video uh, when he does not believe he's being observed or out of sight of his treating physicians to use that left arm and hand and lift it above his head, do some activities here. He's washing uh, a vehicle above his head. He's climbing. He's hoisting himself with that arm. He doesn't seem to have any trouble using it. And as the video progresses, here he is doing pull-ups using a pull-up bar. This is pretty outrageous fraud, if you ask me. And as the video progresses, after he's done doing pull-ups, he continues working out. And in the next scene, he's now doing inverted pull-ups where he's laying on his back in sort of a, a laying down position and pulling himself up with his arms, clearly doing an exercise routine. Later in the video uh, of the claimant, we're able to see him doing push-ups and he's doing uh, about, it looks like a dozen or so push-ups unrestricted with no problem, which clearly if he had significant injuries to his left shoulder and bicep, he would be unable to do. So pretty outrageous video, definitely supports the employer's belief that this claimant is a fraud. So how do we utilize this at trial and how does this support our defense? So our defense essentially has been raised saying the injuries are not work-related and that's really as proxy for the fact that the injuries don't exist because this claimant is a fraud. We have covert surveillance, which will help us demonstrate uh, that he is a fraud when it comes time for the trial of this proceeding. So at that first hearing, that pre-hearing conference, we will raise fraud and we will indicate to the parties that we will present video surveillance. Now. Uh, 
at the the way trial proofs work in New York, when we do raise fraud and we have covert surveillance or really any um, thing to rebut or refute the, the claimant's allegations, the claimant testifies first and then we present our video surveillance. So our actions to prepare this case will be to present those proofs at trial. Our paraprofessional will do the work essentially of preparing the pre-hearing conference statement, securing witnesses, maybe pre-interviewing the witnesses. In this matter, I would expect the witness uh, to be primarily the investigative agent who did that covert surveillance uh, so that we could prepare this case to present it to the court. Let's move on now to a completely different class of claims, which I'm going to label occupational exposure claims. And occupational exposure claims are compensable under the statute as amended. And the statute does not enumerate specific classes of, of injuries or illnesses. It just simply says any and all occupational diseases can be compensable. So the types of uh, common occupational exposure claims that we see are things like bilateral hearing loss, that would be sensorineural hearing loss, not conduction uh, hearing loss, uh, respiratory or inhalation injuries, typically in a, a chemical plant or a, a dusty or smoky environment where the claimant alleges in, inhaled particles damaged their lungs or caused uh, some type of disease process to begin or become aggravated. And then, of course, orthopedic injuries resulting from repetitive or cumulative use. And the most classic one of those, of course, being carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, alleged to be work-related. The statute of limitations in occupational exposure claims is very fluid. It is two years from the claimant knew or should have known that their disease is or was due to the nature of the employment. And so we can see these claims being brought decades after the claimant has stopped working for the employer. Uh, and typically, when we look into this, the were first told or knew or should have known when their attorney told them, hey, you have a claim that maybe you can file against someone. So there are some limitations on these claims though. Uh, for example, there has to be something in the workplace that's unique, distinct, or peculiar that causes the claimant's injury. Uh, there has to be something about that specific employment that led to the alleged cumulative, repetitive, or exposure injury that the claimant alleges. And this case law has said that it has to be some unique feature of that particular employment and not some feature that could be uh, occur at any employment. So when you're considering whether or not these conditions are compensable, think about what unique or distinct risk is associated with that specific employment or employer type. And that risk should not be shared with the general population. It needs to be something that's specific to that employment. It's the reason why skin cancer is very unlikely to succeed as an occupational exposure claim because everybody's exposed to sunlight in every employment. It's really not unique to anyone. It also has to be brought timely. And again, there is a statute of limitations. It is two years from when they claim it knew or should have known that their condition was work-related. And I'll talk in the, in the next slide about how we can demonstrate that. Uh, injuries or conditions not likely to be found compensable are those where there is nothing really specific to any one employment that is closely related to the condition or they're simply brought out of time. New York has another concept called date of disablement and that concept is that the board needs to establish a point, a period in time when that condition was fixed, measurable, and arrested or was extant to the point where the board can then go back and start awarding benefits from some specific date. Well, the board can pick any one of the following, the day that 
They claim it was last exposed to that workplace, the last time they worked in that uh, specific job type or that specific location. They can point back to the date of first medical care for that uh, alleged injury or illness. The date that the claimant had knowledge that the injury potentially could be work-related or the date of first missed day from work. So any of those dates could be considered the date of disablement. And that's important because if the date of disablement occurs distant, long time into the past, you could reduce the rate of compensation that you're paying. You could also maybe be pointing at an entirely different employer or maybe an entirely different period of policy coverage or exposure. To defend an occupational exposure claim, I want us to generally focus on facts. This means we need to understand the work circumstances so that we can challenge medical causal relationship. And there's a lot of ways to do this. There's a lot of employer provided documents and witnesses that are going to be key to us defending this case. I'm going to give you some examples. Air quality reports or air quality studies, industrial hygiene reports, air sampling, mitigation procedures, equipment like the use of per, uh, personal protective equipment, any testing or certification that was done perhaps by industrial hygienists, any National Institutes of Occupational Safety and Health or NIOSH testing that's been done. How about OSHA reporting, occupational safety and health reporting or recorded OSHA incidents? Any of that stuff is gonna be useful for us in defending and disputing claims. Um, you know, I defended, and even media accounts. Uh, media accounts can be useful as well. I was defending one employer, a large industrial concern, and every year this employer won the National OSHA Award for the best clean air inside of their facility. In fact, this facility, which is located in Linden, New Jersey, regularly had air quality testing where the air quality inside the plant actually exceeded the air quality in the industrial area that it was located in, which is Linden, New Jersey, which if you know it, there's a lot of refineries and um, you know petroleum processing plants and stuff in that area of New Jersey. So we were able to say, wait a second, how can this person have been exposed to something in this plant where the air inside the plant is actually cleaner than the air outside the plant? So you can look to those kinds of things, those awards, those records, to help you defend these cases. And we should really be digging in on these cases. We should not give up on occupational exposure claims. We should be prepared to attack on the dates and attack on the facts. Putting together a strong case will help you and allow you to win. Now, our legal arguments or considerations for defending occupational exposure claims, our first concern is to get these cases off the rocket docket. There are two kinds of cases where they should not be on the rocket docket or the expedited trial calendar. Uh, one of them are complex etiology or complex causation cases like an occupational exposure, cumulative exposure claim. You know, these are going to involve, generally speaking, toxicologist reports. Uh, we're going to have to do maybe some forensic reports in order to determine what the person was exposed to and how that led to their alleged illness. So we're going to really try to get this off the expedited trial calendar because there is no way we're going to be getting that kind of in-depth reporting done and investigation done in the 90 days that these cases are typically resolved within. The next thing is we're going to want to conduct a very thorough medical discovery. Um, we're going to be looking into the claims in the uh, employee claim form, that's C-3. We're going to be issuing HIPAA releases to look in prior medicals. I'm going to look for to cross-examine their treating physicians. I'm going to be looking at health records from all of their employers, prior and subsequent. And we're going to be, of course, thinking about apportionment. Is there another employment exposure with someone else who worsened, accelerated, or aggravated this condition? Or was this condition um, actually caused by a different employer? So we're going to want to look into all of that stuff. That's going to help us defend these claims most fully.
So occupational exposure cases should be and can be defended, and really the focus in defending them typically uh, is going to be the facts and then jurisdictional limitations. And by that, I literally mean the statute of limitations, because oftentimes when we start going through your medical records uh, in the distant past, we realize the claimant has treated for this condition for a long time and maybe even told physicians, hey, I think this condition is because of my employment. Well, that begins the statute of limitations period running. Next topic I want to talk to you, and again, we're talking about the foundational considerations we make when we're defending a case, is the concept of average weekly wage. And it's not as simple as it seems in this jurisdiction. Average weekly wage is absolutely foundational in New York because the rate at which you're going to pay wage replacement is going to be calculated at two-thirds of the employee's pre-accident average weekly wage. And the rate at which you pay awards for permanent disability is also going to be based on that pre-accident average weekly wage. And I wish I could tell you that there is a simple and easy formula that the courts universally apply to come up with the claimant's average weekly wage, but the answer is a lot uh, less uh, clear than that. And I'm sorry to tell you that this is an area where there is a good deal of litigation as we have to dispute allegations of very inflated average weekly wages and different methods of calculating average weekly wage. So New York is helpful in that New York does have a a specific form, it's called a C-240 wage statement, that the employer is supposed to record 52 weeks of wage earnings on us on this form and submit it to the board so that we have a good source of wage information. The key parts of the wage statement are the total earnings that are going to be recorded by the employer, the length of time employed, and the typical work week. And most C-240 wage statements will be accompanied by a 52-week um, listing of what the claimant made in each week. So that's going to be very useful for us in order to determine the person's actual average weekly wage. And again, we are looking for the most accurate average weekly wage we can find, and the claimant's going to want to try to develop the most inflated average weekly wage that they can portray themselves as having earned. So let's look at some good sources of wage information and some bad sources. Good sources, of course, are going to be that C240 form I just talked about. That's the employer wage statement. It's coming from the employer. It's complete. Hopefully it has 52 weeks of wages on it, and we can utilize that um, to sort of establish a wage. The second best source, in my opinion, is employer payroll records. These are records held by or controlled by the employer. And if we have neither of those things, then we can look to a similar worker payroll. Uh, you know, we could look at a worker who's been in that employment uh, and say, okay, this is they have the same job title, same location, same amount of experience. Let's use their wages because we don't have a better source. For some employers, employers, sorry, employees, <laughs> um, we're going to look to a Social Security earnings statement, and this is going to be particularly important in our cumulative or uh, uh, repetitive exposure cases or our inhalation cases uh, that are brought post separation from the employment, typically post-retirement. Bad sources of wage information. I'm just going to tell you anything that's provided to us by the employee is got to be treated with some skepticism, particularly employee-provided pay stubs. I've been at this for over 20 years. I've seen everything from faked pay stubs to 
turning in other people's pay stubs, that's not going to work. Also, employees who claim that they were receiving large cash tips uh, as uh, remuneration for their employment, well, those cash tips don't count if they were not reported. Uh, if they're not being paid taxes on them, if they're not reporting them, they're just pocketing them, uh, they can't come forward later and then claim that they were entitled to or received large cash tips on a regular basis if they can't account for them. And the last thing I just want to give as a warning is tax returns, uh, particularly in the um, the employer context where the employer is also the holder of the policy. And when you ask them what their wages are, they bring out tax returns. Tax returns are a very poor uh, place of determining someone's income. And the reason for that is you can put down anything you want on a tax return. Uh, if the, the government's very happy if you put down, hey, I, I earned $500,000 last year on my tax return, because they're happy to tax you on that. But you know, you have up to three years to go back and amend or change or edit your tax returns. So an employee who's using this as proof of the wages they earned can inflate the amount of wages they allegedly earned on their tax return, show it to you, and then go back to the government and revise or edit it down. So uh, that's a very bad source of wage information and should not be really relied on. So okay, how are we gonna calculate the average in average weekly wage? What methods are approved in the law? Well. The first method is the easiest method, and it's the one that I really like. It's called the straight division method, and it's specifically approved in the statute section 14. The statute says, quote, the average weekly wages of an employee shall be one fifty-second part of his average annual earnings. So what do you do? You just take their average, their earnings for the entire year, you divide it by 52, and that's their weekly wage, right? Makes a lot of sense. Um, you could also say it's the total amount paid in wages to the employee divided by the number of weeks they worked. Again, straight division method. The law also allows for the calculation of an average daily wage and then multiplying that by a hypothetical number of days in a work year. This is called the multiplier method. And the last method, uh, the third method, is to use another worker's wage information, so long as that worker is engaged in a similar employment. And this is typically done where the employee has worked for you for such a short period of time uh, that they maybe don't even have a full week of pay. So we'll use a similar worker's uh, uh, records. All of these methods are specifically included in the workers' compensation law. All of them are specifically approved. So they have three different methods of calculating the average, and I'm going to show you in upcoming slides that this will yield radically different results. So if you, again, you can use the straight division method. If you don't have a full year's worth of wages, uh, then you could consider using a multiplier method, uh, or you could use similar worker wages. So those are your, your sort of your choices. Let me give you an example, again, using that C240 statement that I included in today's materials. Um, let's presume $37,800 was total earnings for the year. The claimant worked 225 days in 47 weeks. You just simply take that total earnings, you divide it by the number of weeks he actually worked, and that yields an average weekly wage of $804.25. Now, let's use the same wage statement and use the 260 multiple. And I can imagine that my adversary would argue for this and say, Judge, he only worked 47 weeks, so that's not a full year, so Judge, you should use a multiplier method. Well, the same earnings in the same number of days, $37,800 in total earnings, only worked 225 days. This would be, you know, to divide the total earnings by the number of days worked, that equals to a $168 average daily wage. Multiply that by the multiplier, which is in the statute, 260, and you now come up to an $840 average weekly wage. That's significantly higher. 
The last method is to use a similar worker, and we've included a similar worker information in the wage statement. This similar worker, Henry C., worked at the same uh, employer. He worked 281 days, so he was a go-getter, uh, only took off his weekends and not all of them, and he earned uh, $52,626.60. If you take that uh, number, divide it by the number of days he worked, you come up with an $187 daily wage or a $936 average weekly wage. And so compare them all together. That straight line divisor method, again, that's, in my opinion, the fairest method would yield an average weekly wage of $804.25. Same employee, same payroll. Uh, if you use the multiplier method, you're going to come up with $840 in no cents. And if you use the similar worker method, you would come up with a uh, even higher wage using, of course, an entirely different person of $936.40. So you're going to get wildly different results depending on which of these calculating methods you use. Our position here at Lois is we should be always arguing for the straight line divisor method. It's always the fairest if the claimant has worked more than even a few weeks at the employment. I really only will stipulate to a similar worker method or recommend it where the claimants really work there only a week or two and it's just impossible to determine what their average weekly wage would have been. Now, the law protects those who have multiple employments at the same time. If the employee has multiple employments, all of their wages would be summed together. And then if they're losing time from all of their employments, their wage compensation or temporary disability benefit would be based on all of those uh, added together. And again, that's just basic and fair. New York also allows for minors who are defined as those under 25 years old to be given an extra boost in their average weekly wage, considering the fact that, hey, they're under 25, they've probably only been in the workforce a short period of time, their wages would be expected to rise over the course of their career. And so the judge of compensation is allowed to consider that and has the discretion to add percentages onto their uh, average weekly wage to try to be more fair. And again, they're just trying to uh, bring the minors up and keep it fair so that the person at the beginning of their career who has a significant catastrophic or debilitating injury uh, doesn't uh, get punished for being a new entrant into the workforce. Wage replacement is subject to maximums and minimums, and those maximums and minimums vary by year. They are recalculated every year based on the state average weekly wage, and those maximums run from July 1 of the current year to July 30th of the next year. So until July 30th of 2023, the current maximum rate is $1,125.46. The minimum rate is currently $150 a week, and that's been uh, stable uh, for more than a decade. They, has, they have not increased that minimum rate, although there was uh, legislation that was passed in 2022, which would have increased the minimum rate. Uh, that was vetoed by the governor uh, just a few weeks ago. Okay, let's talk about some practical takeaways from today, because we've covered a lot and we've really thought about what happens when there's an injury, how we decide to deny or dispute a case, what do we do in an occupational exposure context, and then how do we calculate that most important number in our workers' compensation case in New York, the average weekly wage. So my advice is be decisive. Let's decide early to accept or deny because that's gonna really set the course of this case. 
identify who are the stakeholders, where are the information we're going to need. Let's get that information out there. Let's work quickly at the beginning of the case to set this case on a course either, either towards accepting it as compensable or disputing it uh, for either legal or factual reasons. I'll remind you that you can always withdraw a denial. Um, it's ex you are can do in this jurisdiction an acceptance without prejudice. However, it's statistically unlikely that an acceptance without prejudice can later be transformed to a fully controverted or denied case and have that be sustained. My advice is if you're unsure or if you need to do an investigation before you accept the compensability of a matter, deny the case because you can always withdraw that later. Occupationals can be defended. In this jurisdiction, focus on the facts. We can help you put together an investigation plan so that we can dispute and defend a questionable occupational claim. My last piece of advice here is don't stipulate or concede on average weekly wage. This is very important at the outset of the case to get this right. You want to get this right so that you don't have the claimant obtaining a high average weekly wage that they're not entitled to because that is going to drive your exposure on both temporary disability and when a case comes time for permanency or settlement because either the permanency aspect of the case or the settlement is going to be 100% based on that average weekly wage that you had set early in the matter. So be careful about that, be thoughtful about that, and fight average weekly wage. All right, I've gone way over on time, so I'm going to skip the question and answer session for today. You can email me or text me your questions, and I'll get back to you, but I've been going way over here, and I'm sorry for that, but this was our beginning of this new segment, the new courses, uh, and our new curriculum for this year, and I really wanted to start it off strong and give a good foundation. Next month, we're going to talk about indemnity and medical benefits. Um, then in April, we're going to look at common litigation issues, including fraud. So stay with us. These presentations and this curriculum is going to build through the year, and we're going to develop a really strong sense of how to defend workers' compensation cases in New York together. All right, everybody, thanks for joining me today. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you next month.